This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this Naval History episode of the show is the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Hello, Ward. How you doing? I'm doing great. We've been on sort of a run here of Naval History programs. Uh, we talked about the Bay of Pigs, the Bahia de Escochinos, with our good friend, Norman Friedman, that was that was a lot of fun, and yeah. uh, then we just were talking to Andy Blackley about the Yellow River battle, the war that sort of informed how China approaches navies these days. That was really interesting, and now we're here with special friend of the show who's on his third episode. I think that's a record. I'm pretty sure that's a record. Commander Graham Scarborough. And last time we saw our good friend Heed was at Tailhook 2019. We were actually out there, and before the world shut down a few months later, we look forward to going to Hook again this year in person. Heed, will you be out there for that in your capacity as uh, Strike Fighter Wings Lant Goomba? I uh, I hope so. I, I was actually thinking about that today. I need to uh, make some hotel reservations. So I'd love to be out there. Glad to be back with you guys, uh, talking about something a little different. Uh, this time, so thanks for having me on. It is different. You're quite the Renaissance man. We already knew that. So the article is called "The Last Cruise of the Halibut," and it is in the it's in the the April issue. So he tell us a little bit about this uh, this submarine and, and its uh, amazing history. The Halibut is a Gato class uh, submarine uh, that was completed right before uh, the outbreak of World War II. Uh, for the United States, right before the attack on Pearl Harbor, and um, my grandfather was a plank owner of the boat. He he joined the Navy uh, in early 1941. Went through his initial training uh, in Pensacola, actually, and then um, reported to Halibut as part of that its initial crew. And lo and behold, uh, within uh, I think a couple of weeks of um, getting the crew together, uh, Pearl Harbor is attacked, and uh, Halibut sails off as part of the, uh, the submarine war against Japan. Um, so I grew up hearing stories about my, uh, my grandpa's boat. Um, I grew up um, with, uh, he had the halibut battle flag uh, on display uh, in, his, uh, in his house, something that I have since inherited. It's on the wall uh, in our house. Um, I, listening to stories, I, I used to write, when I was a kid, I used to write pretend stories about the crew of the halibut and it always had uh, Skeeter the dog, who I'm sure we'll talk about. It always had Skeeter in it. Um, I remembered that from my grandpa's uh, stories. And um, uh, eventually I, I decided I wanted to kind of um, shed the light on, on what Halibut went through in the war. 
um, by kind of recounting the tale of its last, uh, its last battle that it participated in. And the reason is because Halibut's not one of the more famous submarines out of the war. It, it, it doesn't have sort of a rock star record. It, but it, it, in that way, it represents so many other boats, um, that, that did the work in the Pacific and may not have made a huge impact on their own, but as part of that larger force, they turn, really turned the tide uh, during some dark days in the Pacific and were instrumental to um, U.S. success. So that's kind of what led me to um, focus on writing about the halibut for the article. Well, it's a very gripping sea story, um, in addition to the tale of uh, heroism, survival, and as you mentioned, a very gutsy mascot. Um, they set out on uh, 14 November 1944. It's their 10th patrol of World War II. Yeah, none of the crew could know that that would be their final cruise. Um, so why don't you tell us about what ensues? Yeah, sure. The, so Halibut um, is uh, is assigned to patrol with a couple other boats in the Bashi uh, Channel, uh, which is between um, the Philippines and uh, to the south and uh, Formosa, Taiwan, to the north. And... Um, they're uh, patrolling there. The, the Japanese are withdrawing troops from the Philippines or trying to resupply troops to the Philippines as that campaign is going on. And Halibut's orders are just to hang out and, and see who they can catch. And so um, the night before uh, the, uh, the attack, uh, their skipper, Gallatin, uh, Pete Gallatin, he sees air, Japanese air traffic overhead and he thinks, OK, they're probably searching for submarines or ships along this route we have a pretty good chance of catching somebody uh, in this area. Lo and behold, they, they discover a, um, a Japanese convoy uh, uh, comprised of mixed merchant ships and, uh, and military vessels, and they dive and proceed uh, with the attack. Um, they fire uh, torpedoes at the, uh, uh, at the convoy. Um, they miss their intended target, but hit a target on the same azimuth further along, which causes some anxiety in the crew. Uh, wondering if they're going to score any hits, uh, but the Japanese are are right on top of them. They have some um, uh, some sub hunting vessels um, that basically park right overhead Halibut and start a depth charge attack, um, which um, which is what uh, real which it stops the Halibut's attack. And now they they shift from um, sort of attack mode into uh, preservation mode. They've got to uh, fight the ship from a damage control perspective and try and preserve uh, preserve the seaworthiness of the boat. What happens is uh, kind of amazing that uh, they survive it. Um, you describe some of the uh, claustrophobic dangers in, uh, they face as they're down there uh, trying to avoid those depth charges. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. One of the things to, to back, back out big picture and talk about sort of what I read and where I went to get some of this information, um, Gallatin, Admiral Gallatin, as he was um, when he retired, he wrote a memoir about his time as the skipper of the halibut. Um, and it's interesting because if you read it, it reads very emotionless. It's very much kind of just the facts, ma'am. Um, you know, he, he's, he says, oh yeah, it shook the ship and we were worried and, and you know, such and such a thing happened that we were concerned about. There's, there's not a lot of narrative urgency in the way he tells the story, both with this attack and with the, the exploits of the boat. And, when I was reading that, I thought, you know, there's no way that he was this calm um, when it actually happened. If, if you read about 
He says at one point it felt like a giant hand pushed the ship down. Um, the force of the explosions were so were so strong. And and at another point he talks about how everything was thrown about, including torpedoes in the forward torpedo room. I mean, those are huge pieces of equipment, and he mentions it, um, you know, very nonchalantly. And so I looked at the actual war patrol reports of Halibut, um, which the uh, Naval History uh, and Heritage Command hosts online. And um, they got into a little bit more detail about the actual nature of the damage suffered by the boat. So essentially, if, if you imagine sort of a soda can holding it in either end and then pushing it a little bit and twisting it a little bit, um, that's what happened to the hull um, for about two thirds of the length of the boat. Um, they they took damage to uh, the the main mount, the the deck gun mount, their um their conning tower was uh, um, pretty, he, he says it's severely dished in, which means it's got a big old dent in it from the explosion. Um, they, they took a lot of damage. And um, Gallatin in his book is, is so matter of fact. And I think that kind of speaks to sort of the tone of um, why I wanted to capture Halibut is because he presents this incredible heroism, this incredible fight for survival of the ship in such a, such a, relaxed way and i think it's because the the men on that ship on that boat um you know they saw it as part of the job uh you know they looked back on it and they thought well we were just doing what we were supposed to do and so you have to dig a little deeper to to really under you know put try and put yourself in the shoes of the people that were there and that's uh kind of what i was trying to do in the piece so the the ship the boat is very damaged their steering's knocked out their radio's knocked out um, everything's on manual power instead of hydraulic power. Um, a lot of the valves um, that keep seawater out are are busted, um, and so uh, and then some of the compressed air that they use for surfacing the boat um, is damaged. And what that results in in the um, uh, in officers' country where the forward battery well is, which is what gives them power as they um, steam uh, submerged. What happens is this. A uh, huge rush of inrush of air happens. This weird smell sort of comes over everybody. They feel that space pressurized, and the the men in that compartment they think, well, if salt water mixes with the um, the materials in the battery, it's some kind of acid and lead. If it mixes, that causes a chemical reaction which releases poisonous chlorine gas. We got to scram, and they get out of the compartment um, as quickly as they can shut the door, and now they've basically built a pressure cooker in that space. And they're concerned that there's chlorine gas building up inside of that, um, uh, inside of that uh, space, and, and it's poisonous, and it threatens the structural integrity of the, sh- of the boat, which is already damaged um, because that air pressure is building uh, in the space, and they're worried about it, essentially, to use, continue with the soda can analogy, they're worried about it blowing out part of the soda can and now you've got a huge hole hole in the hull and uh the boat's going to sink so that's that's the that's the scenario that they're in but to read gallatin's report um you know it sounds like another day at the office which is what part of the story that i found absolutely remarkable um he's obviously writing with a couple years detached from the from the event but even the war patrol report which i assume was um drafted relatively short order after the events it's very bullet point you know, just the facts. Um, and so um, trying to imagine what that must have felt for them emotionally um, 
and the confusion that that created, I thought made it for a, an interesting story. Yeah, he's a he's a stoic guy for sure. They were under attack for about 12 hours. They had to stay submerged. And so you ride only after sunset to the submarine finally surface. Uh, crews exhausted and rattled and the boat was severely damaged. So obviously they're out of commission. How did they get somewhere where they could get the ship repaired or, or in the case of the halibut, it was total, I guess, is the way you would, you would say it yeah. in, in automobile parlance. So what, what happened once, once the, the attack was over? So they, they benefit from being part of this wolf pack. Um, you know, there's at this point in the war, there's submarines, American submarines kind of everywhere. The problem is they don't have any way to contact them. Their radio is knocked out and their steering is um, either it's either out of commission or it's damaged enough that they, the best they can do is kind of point straight in the direction that they think they might find help and just kind of hold the steering there. Um, and so eventually they get they have one of their surface search radars functioning and they pick out a radar contact and Gallatin kind of makes a gamble that this is an American submarine. And what he does is he uses the radar signal as a, as a sort of telegraph in Morse code. He essentially pings this ship with the surface search radar, whatever this contact is. Uh, and he sends, uh, he sends a message in Morse code that says, I think it says, please help or send help. Um, so clearly they're in, they're in dire straits. It turns out that that is another um, uh, U.S. submarine, and uh, it joins company with uh, Halibut. Halibut can make enough way to get back to Saipan, uh, which is the um, closest sort of friendly uh, submarine-capable area, uh, where it rendezvous with a, a submarine tender, and then they can make enough repairs to get back to Pearl Harbor and then eventually back to the United States. But, I mean, imagine that you surface at night, you get a radar contact, and the only way you're going to get help is if you take this gamble and try and signal another boat. And who knows who those guys are? You're just you're just guessing that, you know, the Japanese have hightailed it because of this attack and some other member of your wolf pack or some other U.S. submarine or ship is out there. So they, they definitely kind of take a gamble in that um, in that sense. But they managed to get the boat back to um, back to safety and then they can affect enough repairs to get back to the United States. It was a leap of faith, but if there's ever a time for that, it was that it was at that point for the halibut. Yeah, um, absolutely. You mentioned there's a there's one survivor of the halibut still, a 96 year old Tudor Davis. Um, right. You got to speak to him for this. What was that I, like? I did. I talked to him on the phone. Uh, he lives out on the uh, on the west coast. Um, I found an article about him in his local paper, uh, and uh, it was from uh, you know it's from 2019, I think, uh, and so I. I took a gamble and I said, well, you know, he may still be, uh, he may still be with us. So I contacted the reporter for the local paper that wrote the article. I asked him if he was willing to let me get in touch with him. I got in touch with, um, uh, Davis's daughter and then she arranged the phone call and, uh, that was fantastic. He, he is a, uh, uh, he's a career submariner. Um, he ended up in, um, nuclear boats and missile boats and he was Every, he ended up being a chief petty officer. He, he was brand new green um, in the later stages of the war. Um, and he had this full career after that. But the thing that he was most enthusiastic about was halibut. Um, you know, he loved that boat. That boat was a central part of his career. Um, 
you know, and, and it's easy to say, oh, well, that's because of the, that's because of the war. It was his wartime service. Um, but I think it's also because of the, the circumstances of the, of the survival, you know, that, that incident, the, the, the attack, uh, on, on halibut, the depth charging had such an impact on each of these, uh, men that were on the boat that it, you know, it was, it was the mate for a lot of them. I think it was the defining period of their, of their lives. It certainly sounds that way, um, for, uh, for Tudor Davis. And it was true of my grandfather as well. Um, that, that this was, you know, the culmination of, of their lives in, in many ways. So I got a chance to talk to him and he had sort of that same spirit that Gallatin had. He was very understated, very, you know, Hey, we were a team. None of us were heroes. We were just doing what we were told. You know, we, we owed it to our country, um, in the wake of what happened at Pearl Harbor. And, uh, I thought submarines were cool cause they were going to pay me some extra money. And if you, you know, those of us who've been in, in service or have been around the Navy long enough, um, know that that's not enough to get through, um, something like Halibut went through. Um, so again, just like, uh, Gallatin, he undersells the, just that de- level of devotion that these shipmates had to each other and to their boat. Um, so talking to him was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm going to get him a copy of the magazine and, um, I, I, I still text with his daughter, uh, from time to time, um, just to say hello and, and that kind of thing. So it's fantastic, uh, to stay in touch with him. Well, he says, this is like a period specific phraseology. He says, we were regular Joes, nothing special. That sounds like a John Wayne movie dialogue, right? And, and he also has high praise for Gallantin. And it's always great to hear a former enlisted guy talk so sort of unconditionally uh, positively about his CO like this. So as you've mentioned, uh, Gallantin's a very understated guy. You, you, in the article, there's some quotes where he gives, you know, he, he says, quote, no praise is too high for the performance of duty by all officers and men. It's a source of great pride to the commanding officer to serve with men who so completely conform to the highest traditions of our Navy. It was the unfailing fighting spirit, teamwork and initiative of all hands that made possible the halibut success and safe return. So it's not about him. As you said, he's very matter of fact, no drama, so forth and so on. But to hear, um, Tudor Davis talk about him all these years later uh, in, in such effusive praise is really uh, it, it warms my heart uh, and it is the, the highest traditions of of our business uh, and and so again Gallantin must have been a really amazing amazing guy yeah and they all they all talk about each other in that same way right Tudor praises Gallatin in the way that Gallatin praises the men in the way that the men praise nobody is making it about themselves. They're making it about each other. And I think that speaks to the, to the, uh, impactfulness of the event and to the team spirit that, that brought them through. They, they recognize implicitly or explicitly that that's what did it was all of them working together. Galton's memoir, the, the back half of the memoir is full of praise for the XO of the boat. And, and he, he calls him out, uh, by name over and over and over again. Um, he clearly had a very good relationship with the, the, the whole boat, um, and tr- really trusted the, the, his wardroom. Uh, and that trust paid off, uh, at the time when the, um, when the ship came under attack, uh, which is, uh, which is, uh, exactly what you want, right? If you're the CEO, that's exactly what you want is to build that level of trust so that everyone relies on each other in that moment of crisis. Which they did. And, um, you're among dog lovers here, Graham. So you have to talk to us about Skeeter, the mascot, who, uh, <laughs> 
yeah, it's also so, pretty amazing through this ordeal as well. Yeah. So um, I, again, like I said, I remember hearing stories about Skeeter uh, when I uh, was a kid. Um, he in the photo that that's the front of the the article. There's a photo of the crew, and um, and, and Skeeter is like front and center in the top uh, at the top of the conning tower, which I uh, which I love. Anyway, apparently they discovered him in San San Francisco. Um, outside Lefty O'Doul's, which is uh, my, you know, which is sort of the crew, a sailor's haunt uh, off a of Union Square. When I visited San Francisco a few years back, it was still there. It was awesome to go in there um, and, and, you know, sit where these, these men had had a drink before, you know, shipping out, right? Um, and uh, so they, they discover Skeeter. They adopt him. They take him on the uh, on on patrol, and he becomes a valuable member of the crew. and And it's fun to to see that you know in Gall in Gallatin's memoir, he talks about how Skeeter had been surly and he'd soiled a chief's leg. And you know that he's clearly he's as much part of the crew as any person. Um, and the stories that come up about him around this attack are really interesting. Everybody sort of remembers if if you read multiple versions of the of the story everyone kind of remembers things a little bit differently. And one of the things that, that Skeeter is, is said to have done is to have noticed a strange sound um, overhead the, the boat immediately before they came under attack. Um, and um, Gallatin says, hey, the, the sonar operator, the radio, uh, either sonar operator or the radio operator, I don't recall, says that, hey, someone heard this weird sound on the, on the radio. We think it was... Um, uh, essentially the Japanese uh, early version of a magnetic anomaly detector, so sub-hunting equipment designed to look for a metal thing under the water. But in some versions of that story, it's Skeeter that hears it first, and he alerts the crew, or, or um, you know, Skeeter uh, starts growling before anybody hears anything, or, or does something, you know, out of the, out of the ordinary. Um, and I just love that, first of all, because it, it it's a classic sea story in that everybody who looked at it has slightly different takes on what exactly happened. Um, but still this, this mutt that they found on the streets in San Francisco and adopted becomes part of the, the story. Um, and, uh, eventually he, Skeeter survives the attack. Uh, he is adopted by the boats cook, um, after the war. Um, I don't know what happens to Skeeter. I, I, I hope he lived a, uh, full long, uh, life with a pension. Um, but you know, when I was a kid, that was the part of the story that I loved the most was the story about the dog. Um, uh, and now as a, as an adult, I, I focus more on damage control, but I think you can get plenty about, about Skeeter as well. He was part of the, part of the crew. He's a good luck charm and it, it paid off. Um, so I, I always love that story. Everyone, he, he comes up in lots of different interviews with Halibut crew members over the years. Yeah. The, if you, Listener, get the this issue of the magazine, the April issue of Naval History, and read Graham's article. There's two very cute pictures of Skeeter. One is the ship's crew photo, and Skeeter's front and center there, uh, perched on the ship's gun. And there's another one where he's uh, on a a um, cleat on the pier, looking at the crew. Um, and uh, it's just really an adorable, as Eric said, we're all dog lovers here. And the, those are just fantastic. This screenplay writes itself, you know, oh, I'm just, just thinking, um, <laughs> you know, you can hear I, I, I would make that absolute fact that Skeeter 
when his ears perk up, you're about to get torpedoed or depth, you know, uh, the depth charges are about to come. You know, I, I just love that. And, and getting adopted by the ship's cook, uh, it's just, there's a poetry about this. That's, that's yeah. really the stuff of an era gone by. I mean, I, can you imagine a ready room if you were allowed to have a dog? That would be, that would be fantastic. Oh, it'd be great. It'd be great. I, and that's part of it too, is this, this sort of, you know, this, um, the mindset of these, um, World War II submariners, I think, was was very different than, uh, you know, I think a lot of things that we have in our Navy today. It's just a, it's a wartime culture. It's a piratical sort of buccaneering culture. They are taking big risks. Um, they're they're um, putting the whole boat on the line um, for these uh, dramatic attacks, not because they, they want to be famous, but because they have this this sense of, of the war relies on us. And I think if you talk to submarine officers today, and if you can get them to talk, um, I, they have a they have a lot of that same thing. I gave a brief one time to some ROTC candidates, and I got up there and I thumped my chest and talked about how naval aviation was the best, and we're the main battery, and you know we're going to take the fight to the enemy. And the submariner got up after me, and he's like, "If you want to talk about who's really going to, you know, do all the fighting, talk to a submariner, but he won't tell you anything." You know, and. and and so there's still that sort of mentality in their community where, hey, we don't talk about it, but when you when you need somebody who's got a little bit of a pirate mindset, you know, you call the sub the sub guys. When you when you talk about Eugene Flucky and you talk about uh, Gallatin and these guys aboard the halibut, and you watch Das Boat and you know that sort of thing, they're not wearing uniforms. And, and they have long hair and beards. Um, and, and it's like you said, they're, they're pirates and every guy has to contribute in a, in a way that you got to come out of your lane. I think that's the forged morale piece. And, and this is this bond that so many years later, um, that, uh, your guy, what's his name? Uh, Tudor Davis, uh, is reflecting on, you know, that's a time and a place you're, you're, you're in this, this war wolf pack, you know, diesel boats, what they did and the, the amount of kinetic stuff that they saw in any given patrol, that that's an era gone by with a mascot dog and all this stuff and 10 patrols and, you know, and, and taking it toe to toe with the Japanese in this way. That that is a time and a place that really is the stuff of history. And just to know that we follow in the footsteps of great men like this is it's an, it's really, really awesome. There is this sense of, you know, there, there's this post Pearl Harbor sense among the, the submariners that we're the only ones who can take this fight to Japan. We're the only ones who can who can punch back right now. Right. Do little raid and carrier raids on little small outlying islands in 1940, early 1942. Put all that aside. Right. That's strategic messaging. It's not trying to turn the course of the war. There's this sense in the submarine community that we are it. You know, we are the ones that have got to go into Imperial Japan's backyard and we've got to wreck stuff to make a difference in this war. And, and they're right. I mean, that's exactly what happens, right? I mean, it's, it's bigger than that, obviously, but the material impact to Japan's ability to carry on the war um, is severely, uh, or is, is, it's a huge impact because of the submarine operations. And, to think about 10 war patrols, right? I mean, I think about my, my, my grandfather, right? He lied about how old he was so that he could run away and join the Navy in a, in a peacetime Navy. 
And then when the war came out, they said, good, you're on this submarine until you're not, right? <laughs> and the way you are not on that submarine anymore is the boat sinks, uh, in which case you're eternally on the submarine. You get transferred to another submarine and go back out to war or you, or the war's over, right? Um, and, and that's a, you're, that is a mindset that is totally foreign, um, to, to how we think about it today. Um, and, and the reason it's totally foreign is because of the work that they, that these World War II sailors did, right? We haven't had to live in that world for 70 years because they were so effective, um, in, in fighting and winning World War II, right? The, the, the whole post cold, the whole post World War II era into the Cold War, into the Pax Americana, that's all built on submarine victory against Imperial Japan, right? Not, not literally, right? It's two front war and it's a big, it's a big event, but there's a very real piece of victory in World War II and the modern world that we live in that rests on the submariners uh, of this war. And most of them were not USS Barb or Tang or, or Wahoo, you know, these sort of legendary submarines. Most of them were like Halibut. It was, you know, uh, 80 ish, 80 ish guys and a dog, right? On a boat. Just doing the work, ten ten patrols, and um, you know, it's amazing to think that that's um, that's the level of commitment that these submariners had. Was I'm going to go, and I'm going to either, you know, I'm either going to stay on patrol for forever, or we're going to come back when the war is over. And that it's it really is an amazing uh, mindset. So yeah, I mean, when we you know complain about op tempo and ten month deployments and. Uh, flex schedule and all the other things that we're going through now, the challenges of of the current U.S. Navy, and then you put it in those terms, you know, sort of like the road home is through Berlin kind of a mindset. It's like, right. you, we're it. You know, there's no more trainees coming out here. Nobody has your body of experiences. This is what you're going to do until further notice. And just imagine that. And then imagine the joy when suddenly you're released from this purgatory uh, because the war does, in fact, end. And that's how you get into the second half of the American century, you know, and, and, and this greatest generation. So seriously, the debt we owe to guys like the crew of the Halibut, it, you know, cannot be repaid. And, and as military professionals, that's why naval history exists is to ensure that we don't lose it to time. And I think to, to circle back to our conversation about the reason we write about naval history is because we want to preserve those values and those stories that, that we hope to use as touchstones. Uh, God forbid we ever have to break in case of glass and do it again. Right. So, so, you know, I got a, a book of a pamphlet from my, my grandfather before he died when I was a midshipman. And it was a victory at sea booklet. You remember that there was an old serial series with an awesome soundtrack and it told the story of the Navy's one. They had these little pamphlets and, um, uh, you know, like a little 15 page book or something. It was a submarine war in Atlantic or in the Pacific, uh, part of the victory at sea series. And you open it up and inside he had written recommended duty, love grandpa. Right. And like, I still have that. It's on my shelf downstairs. And he, he said, Hey, I, you know, Think about going submarines and, and, you know, you say all that stuff about nuclear power. I was, there was no way I was getting in the nuclear power program. Like that, you know, nuclear power has changed in a lot of really great ways, the way we do everything. And, 
And so we have, but we have to maintain sort of that diesel boat, fleet boat, pirate spirit, you know, and, and hope that God forbid we ever need that again. Right. That's that professional lineage that they have to draw, draw back on. And that's why naval history is important, right? You've got to keep those stories alive so that when you break the glass in case of emergency, you know, you have that, you know, fly the Jolly Roger or in the aviation community, right? Dueling air wings at Midway or uh, to use an even better example, right? Torpedo Squadron 7, right? Taking that turn because they felt that things were screwed up at Midway. So what they do, the squadron CO made a command decision and he turned the tide of the war by making that command decision and moving, maneuvering his squadron into certain death. Um, you know, you need, we, we need to maintain that spirit. And the way you do that is you keep these stories alive. Um, and it's not all, um, you know, it's not all pulp novel heroism. Sometimes it's a dog at the sonar station um, that gets the job done. And so you, you need that just as much as you need the, the, the front page, uh, you know, Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos kind of uh, moments. Well, that's well put. And as you said, in, in case we have to break glass, you know, we talk about the return to peer conflict, no telling what could happen that would send the, the, the balloon up. Um, the Spratly, South China Sea, the other choke points, uh, you, you don't know, right? And that's why uh, we, we train like we fight. The, the final chapter of the halibut, a potentially undignified end, right? So they, they do eventually reach Portsmouth, New Hampshire in early 1945, um, so, as you put it, the war in the Pacific's winding down. As we all know, it didn't actually end until August of 1945. And so, it's not unlike what Kearsarge just had to go through in terms of the the calculus of uh, what do you do in the in the face of of damage. You know, it's it's sort of the 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 stubby pencil contract specialist in the finance side of the house just starts to look at it very antiseptically, very impassively. Said here, the, the damage was too expensive to justify repairing the boat, and the plans to convert her to a school ship didn't materialize. So Halibut is sold for scrap for this sum of 23000 and change. That that's that's sort of a dubious or not quite a glorious end to a, a a ship that served its country well, but I guess that's how it goes sometimes, right? Right, right. It, yeah, it's 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 interesting to think about Ward. I think as aviators, because um, you know when 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 the Tomcats day was done, they they disposed of the airframes in a million different ways, but a lot of them get preserved and put up on a stick somewhere or put in a, a, you know, air power park or whatever, you know, or in a museum. And, and as aviators, you can kind of look at a, at an airplane that you flew and be like, that was my airplane, right? Whether you have time in that specific air aircraft or not, you know, and someday the super Hornet will go that way. And I'll take the kids to a museum or the grandkids. And I'll say, you know, I, I flew in that plane. Ships are different, right? Because it's not an individual. It's, it's, it's not just the piece of metal, it's the people in it at the time, and you can't preserve every ship, right? You can't, you can't do it. Not every ship turns into a museum ship. And so, so there are some great World War II era boats that are preserved as museums. I, I, for this piece, I, I emailed out to the Bofin Museum uh, in um, Pearl Harbor, 
they were a great resource. I, I, I had some good conversations with them, but, but, you know, a sailor that sailed in a Gato class boat, sailor that sailed on the halibut, he's always going to look at Bofin and be like, that's not my ship, right? That's not my boat. My boat was better. You know, probably say my boat was better. My boat ate their, their boat for breakfast, right? There's a different, I think there's a different way that you think about a ship or a boat than, than you and I might with an airplane. Um, that, that does make that ending very bittersweet, right? Gato class boats are going to be preserved around the United States, but these men who, who came of age or, um, had the most formative experience of their lives in halibut, right? Halibut is gone. Um, and the only connection that they have now at that point is each other. And, and so that's the, the bit that I say in the, in the piece where they have reunions every year until the, the early 2000s. And everyone would try and be the first person to make the reservation at the hotel so they could get room number 232, which is Halibut's hall number, which I think is fantastic. But it is bittersweet because that boat itself, that that ship that they sailed in is gone. And you can kind of get a sense of that when reading Gallatin's uh, memoir. He he sort of remarks on that a little bit, that it's a bittersweet feeling. That was his, you know, he commanded it was his boat. Those were his men. It was their exploits together. Uh, and And... Yeah, bittersweet is, I, I think, a, a good way to put it. The boat had saved their lives, but ultimately that boat would, would be gone. So, you know, you think about a ship as a living person, right? We call a ship a she. We, we refer to it as mom in the aviation business. It's a, it's, a per, it's a living thing to think of that thing giving its life, in a sense, to preserve you and your shipmates, I think, probably does. It's an emotional, uh, it's an emotional thing to think about. So we don't end on a low note. Let's just go through the box score here. So over 10 war patrols, the Halibut won seven battle stars, sank 12 enemy ships, totaling 45,257 tons, damaged 13 more enemy vessels. These tallies make her the 35th most successful U.S. sub of the war by vessels sunk. Her name lived on in her famous progeny, the Cold War era USS Halibut, SSGN-587, which served as a special mission submarine from 1960 to 1976. So great legacy, and those numbers live in perpetuity. Um, and so that's how we uh, should remember the Halibut. Absolutely. And that I'm, I'm encouraged. The, the new attack boats that are being named now are pulling some of those World War II-era boat names back into circulation. So I've got my fingers crossed for a third uh, a third halibut. And then um, to, to put the pit, you, you mentioned this before, Ward, but to, to put the pin in the crew uh, and, and in Gallatin, right, we talked about how humble they were and how understated they were when um, relaying their accomplishments. For this, for, for keep, keeping everyone alive, for keeping the boat seaworthy during this attack uh, and, the, and the events of the 10th War Patrol, Gallatin is awarded the Navy Cross. That's the second highest decoration uh, possible, right? And then the, the, the crew, the boat, earns the Navy unit commendation, which again is the second highest commendation for the boat. So, so sort of the Navy recognizes that this was a big deal, even while the whole crew sort of plays it off and, you know, scrambles for hotel rooms and just enjoys being with each other, right? The Navy recognizes that, that sacrifice. And I think that's what made, that, that's a, a good way to, to think about it is, you know, they're, they did yeoman's work. They 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 were near the top of the middle of the pack or whatever. But ultimately, at the time, um, 
that their their peers understood the impact that that boat had, and uh, I think that that makes the story uh, e- even more worth telling. Um, is the endorsement of the people around them at the time. So the article in the April issue of Naval History Magazine is the last cruise of the halibut. The author is our good friend, Commander Graham Scarborough, who was the Proceedings 2019 Author of the Year. He's currently stationed at Strike Fighter Wings Atlantic at Oceana, so still on active duty and using the forum in myriad ways, uh, really a poster child for effective use of the independent forum. So we salute you, Heed, for this article and your body of work in recent times. And thank you very much for being on the Proceedings Podcast once again. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Great to see you, Graham. Appreciate it. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.